Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Culture Clash podcast. I'm your host, Jake Johnson. And this week, we are talking about spectatorship as it relates to television, uh, the ways in which people identify with characters on TV, how they watch shows, how they aren't watching shows. And we're focusing this conversation today through the show House of the Dragon, the popular HBO fantasy drama that just wrapped up its 10th episode a few weeks back. I am joined today by a wonderful series of guests. Our producer Madison is with us today. Hi, I'm Madison Cook. I'm a secondary education English major at CU Denver. Um, I'm focused on literature and pursuit of certification to teach students the basics of composition, analysis, and critical thinking in their coursework. Also joining us today is Kendall. Welcome, Kendall. Hi, I'm Kendall Adamson. I'm a technical English major with previous experience in the film department here at CU Denver. Um, I'm kind of focused now on business writing, kind of from an advertising and marketing standpoint. I'm really hoping to become a chief copy editor of a digital marketing agency one day. I'm really, really passionate and well-read about movies, television, and basically all things pop culture. Excellent. Our editor, David, also joins us in the studio today. Hi, David. Hey, Jake. I'm David DeBonis. I'm studying English creative writing at CU Denver, and I'm getting a minor in linguistics. I really love language in all fields and forms. I uh, write a lot, and I create art in many modes, especially obscure short films and writing paired with images. And to be perfectly honest, I have no idea where my life is going, and I tend to be in a state of existential crisis for this reason, but we'll keep rolling anyway. (laughs) Aren't we all... And last but not least, joining us today is Landon. Welcome, Landon. Hi, my name's Landon Sickler. I'm a former preschool teacher and a current history major, but my main academic interest is really interdisciplinary studies and critical theory. In my personal life, I'm also really passionate about science fiction and fantasy, world building, multi-author universes, and game design and storytelling in games. And I aspire to be an interfaith community organizer, but who knows, we'll see. (laughs) So we have a wide variety of perspectives for this episode today, so um, be some interesting topics that will come up in conversation. But before we jump into all of that, I, I have to ask, are we all caught up with House of the Dragon? No. I have fallen very far behind in terms of House of the Dragon. In relation to, to Game of Thrones, however, I did finish it right on time um, and was very caught up with all of it. But I I even have yet to start House of the Dragon. I probably won't ever, but, you know, I'm I'm microdosing information through YouTube and Facebook, spoilers and whatnot. What about you, David? I am not caught up. I haven't even started either the Game of Thrones series or the House of the Dragon series, so I'm going to pass to Landon. (laughs) Yeah, I'm definitely caught up. I certainly flirted with the idea of not even watching it, but um, much as with the original Game of Thrones, the social forces were too strong. Uh, There's a lot of peer (laughs) pressure. And then we did this class, so that, that settled it. So very caught up. And what about you, Madison? Yeah, I'm not caught up. I think I'm coming towards the end of the second season of Game of Thrones, and it's just taken a while, so not mm. even close to starting House of the Dragon yet. Jake, are you even caught up? Yeah, so this this is perfect because this contrasts perfectly with you know the way that I approached watching this show because I am such a planner that I made sure that I was there every Sunday night watching it live as it released to HBO Max. Wow. And so it's so interesting to me to hear that we have 
you know, different ways of, of watching, you know, the show, a lot of which, you know, a lot of which sounds like people haven't watched it at all. Right. Um, or those that have have watched it on and off or are kind of caught up, but not really. And here I am completely caught up watching it prime time live. Your commitment blows me away. <laughs> <in all honesty. laughs> yeah, the the envy of having nothing, nothing to do except watch TV. It is real. Is anyone, like, with you when you watch it every week? Yeah, so my roommates and I, I live with three other roommates, so very, very crowded space in a tiny little apartment currently. But I think we've built into this sort of routine, this, like, little ritual. So every Sunday we watch it together. We watch different types of shows together. We're currently, now that House of the Dragon is done, we're currently watching um, the new Star Wars vehicle and or together on Wednesday nights. And, And so we always you know, sit down together and we eat our dinner, little literal TV dinners and watch the show together. And so it's really, it's really cute and fun. And it's just a chance where we get to hang out and turn our brains mm-hmm. off for a little bit. So it's a very, I think, communal experience. Which is sense. so funny. Cause almost when I think about it from that perspective, yeah. I like always giggle to myself because like thinking about it like that, I'm like, Oh, the medieval urge to have my mutton and a biscuit with entertainment. You know what I mean? <laughs> like dinner and a show kind of thing and how important it is to like, especially with shows that mean this much to us, mm, having right. routines that go along with them makes it all that much more fun and more special. And what about you, David? I was just going to mention that Jake's actually watching every Sunday, or he was watching every right. Sunday when it was coming out, whereas my mom started watching it a couple months ago when I told her that I had seen House of the Dragon come out on HBO Max, and she does not watch it on Sundays. I interviewed her, and she actually talked explicitly about how she watched with her husband, Wilbur, and they do not watch on Sundays because of football. Unfortunately, I watch all my shows after they've already ended, and so then I'm (laughs) in a position to watch, like, 11 hours of television that day, and I still have days' worth of content to watch. I don't like being limited. I think that's also why I took my time with Game of Thrones and didn't watch it like you did, Jake. Because I really, I don't like to sit and wait. I didn't want to sit and wait. I was like, (laughs) I'll wait until it's all out and, like, all accessible for me. And then I can, you know, take on all this information as I please. Whether that be in one fell swoop in 24 straight hours or, you know, over the course of several months, you know. Absolutely. David, you had mentioned uh, your mom and the way you had introduced her to this world. And now she is watching, you know, with your with your stepfather, Wilbur. And I'm curious as to if we can hear her perspective on this thing. Okay, so I am here with my mom, Beth. So Beth, what do you think of House of the Dragon so far? Well, I really like it. I didn't even know that they were coming out with a prequel until you mentioned it. So I was really excited when I found out. I'm enjoying it. I think that it's along the same caliber and lines of the original show. So was my mentioning the show what prompted you to start watching it? Yep. Okay. Had you heard about it? You, you hadn't? Nope. I didn't at know all. at all. Yeah. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so did you watch the Game of Thrones series before you started watching House of the Dragon? I did. I watched a few of the seasons. I can't remember how many there are, but I know I was watching it and I could walk, go from one episode to another And then eventually it got to where I'd watched all the available episodes and then they were coming out one a week or something. So then it was 
having to that anticipation and waiting for an episode to come out. And did that remind you of anything? Remind you of what shows used to be like? Totally. <laughs> yeah, because. I remember, especially for some reason, I remember Friday Night TV, where we'd have Dallas and Falcon Crest, and I look forward to watching those shows, and that was the only time that you could watch it. So with Game of Thrones, at least, if you missed when it was airing, then you could watch it whenever or rewatch it, but it definitely reminded me of, having, of sitting down at a certain time and, and looking forward to that. That's really interesting to me hearing your mom talk about how she approached kind of television this way. Not only how she had historically watched television with the shows that she had mentioned growing up, but also the fact that you had introduced her to shows such as Game of Thrones and House of Dr- Dragon, despite you not having watched them yourself. Mm-hmm. But also her not having heard about those shows within the larger cultural context And so that leads me to, you know, where I want to start this podcast today in that, you know, how have people approached watching this show? Because I feel like when we talk about something like Game of Thrones or House of the Dragon, it exists in this pre-established cultural context of everyone knows what we're talking about because everyone's watching it. But clearly, as we have established so far... Not everyone is. And so I'm wondering where those discrepancies lie and how people, how different people approach watching the show differently or don't watching um, the show. I'm curious as your take on this. I think so much of it has to do with the kind of the idea of bandwagon. And I don't use that with like a negative connotation, but I think it was probably pretty easy for you to step up to the plate and be like, mom, I heard about this show. Seems like something you might like. And she was already able to like, you know, dig her heels in. And I also thought it was really important the way she compared and contrasted the show against shows that she was like, remembers being really invested in Mm -hmm. earlier in her life. Like Mm -hmm. she had said Dallas. And you were like, well, you know, does that remind you of anything? And she's like, yeah, like having to sit all week and be forced to wait. Like there was no even streaming. You know, of course, you know, she's like, I can't just, you know, jump around on my smart TV and pick an episode out that came out last year. She's like, I just have to wait Mm -hmm. and hope I get to see what I wanted to see. And I think it's interesting because antithetically to the bandwagon, I think there's a lot of people who do not choose to watch the show because it is so hype. You know what I mean? It's like everyone's <laughs> talking about it. I'm just one more person. If it's that good, you know, it'll make its way into my life. And it ends up not ever doing that. And of course, conversely, you have people like myself who are, you could say fallen victim to the hype, I suppose, where you are hooked in and you do tune in. And especially people like myself who have read the books that the TV shows are based on, written by author George R.R. R. Martin. And so having that preconceived notion of the series and how it will play out, but also an appreciation of it, I think adds to this sort of hype, as you mentioned. And it, it exists in a different space than someone who would approach it without that background, I feel like. And so I'm curious as to whether or not there's you know, the nuances of the, of the difference between someone who is 
a fan of of the works, whereas someone who is more casually observing these types of shows. Which I think begs the question, specifically for Madison, that I'm like, I know you're currently really just diving headfirst into this. And is that entirely because you know that your boyfriend loves it and you want to be able to bond with him over it and talk about it? Yeah, it actually is. I started watching Game of Thrones with him when he started House of the Dragon, mm-hmm. and he was watching like every Sunday night. He would stay up till 4 a.m. if it meant he could watch that episode that came out. <laughs> and so I actually was able to talk to him a little bit about kind of the differences when he was watching Game of Thrones versus House of the Dragon. Why are you watching House of the Dragon? Um, well, like most people, I came from Game of Thrones, which I've been a fan of for a while. (laughs) When did you start watching Game of Thrones? Was it as it was released or at a different time? No, well, (laughs) I started watching when it was a little bit after season eight started airing, and a lot of people were talking about that, and there's a lot of mixed opinions, (laughs) mostly negative, about that season, but... That's when I got into it, and I ended up finishing the show by the time the the last episode aired. Okay, so you binged a solid chunk of the show. (laughs) The entire thing. (laughs) Do you prefer to binge it? Not usually, actually. Just because, like, I feel like with time, it's just easier to take, like, an episode at a time, and it also... I guess, like, if you know other people who are watching it, it kind of gives you time to, like, talk about what happened and then, you know, get excited for the next one. I do kind of like that. So with House of the Dragon, it's kind of your speed with watching it as it releases, like, yeah. episode to episode? Yeah, which is interesting, because when Game of Thrones came out, it was all it was already out, so I I didn't really have to stop at all for that one. So it's a, it's a bit of a different experience, but definitely what I prefer I think (laughs) and I mean for me watching the first six episodes I know the appeal of I don't have to wait to find out I don't have to just sit in my suspense I know what's happening is it more fun for you to like sit in your suspense (sighs) it's almost hard to pick one I've always seen it if you have time to think about it and just, like, think about the different places it could go versus just having it right away. Though, you know, I think it is a bit of a double-edged sword because you can definitely see, like, a lot of people getting wrapped up in how it should happen and instead of just, like, taking, I guess, taking in whatever happens next with an open mind. I think you get the benefit of that when you when you binge through something. Wow, Madison, that was no joke. The fact that he had binged the entire show before the final episode of <laughs> season eight came out is insane. That's dedication <laughs> right there. Yeah, it is. Yeah, that is that is pure insanity, but I actually kind of respect the hell out of it because it's like it's like he really wanted to know and I think that 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 also spurs an interesting conversation is when there's this intensity of content such as Game of Thrones or House of the Dragon I I do feel like it starts to probably like impact your mood or like change your plan for the day because you're like I know that episode is coming out tonight I have a doctor's appointment I have homework and I have to work later how do I arrange all of these things such that I can consume all of this content tonight and I'm not left waiting another day. 
Right. Yeah. Well, and Jake touched on an interesting point earlier about like how being a books before the movies person, you have a difference in that intensity maybe. And then mm-hmm. Darson, you know, really speaks to, you know, you don't have to be into it in that way. You can also just like get really into it. But I think like a lot of the discrepancy sometimes how how we uh, end up viewing these shows is because there there's people taking it all kinds of different ways of seriously oh out yeah there. <laughs> yeah yeah the varying levels of commitment at times can actually be frightening <laughs> i think uh luckily i think darson is on the the lighter end of semi-healthy semi-approachable behaviors that I, I'm not going to lie and say I've never done that before. I just happened to not do it with Game of Thrones. So, <laughs> Was Game of Thrones released a week at a time the way The House of the Dragons being released? I believe so, Or right? was it a as, season I, at a time? As I recall, yes. So uh, this is really dating myself here, but I was not <laughs> old enough to watch Game of Thrones when it had first premiered way back in 2011. Um, but I was old enough to watch it as some of the later seasons came out, and they did release it weekly hmm. and as Darson rightly pointed out there's the appeal of something like uh watching it as it comes out weekly is different than something like binge watching where you mm-hmm. get all of that content at once and you can get the questions answered at once and so there's a sense of immediate gratification when you binge watch but I think weekly watching, there's some kind of unsung benefit to it because, mm. Kendall, you had mentioned like planning you know, a day around uh, or your activities around a show, for right. example. And as far as my own ways I approach watching this show, or at least I did before it ended, was I would make sure that I would have my homework done that day. And I would you know, do what I needed to do earlier in the day because I knew that at 7 p.m. Mountain Standard Time, the next episode would be dropping on Sunday night on, on HBO Max. And so I knew like that's when I would be yeah. watching the show. And so I had that chunk of time in my day reserved for that thing. Mm. And so I think you could regard it as an event of sorts in that way because you are planning your day and your activities around that certain thing. And there's an emotional investment in that. Like if, Absolutely. If something happens during my day, like an emergency pops up or just a, a disgusting inconvenience, you know, I'm pissed off. <laughs> I'm pissed off that I didn't get to sit down with my little drink and my little blanket and sit and watch my show. And I think that, it, again, like that's it's so important. And I think that there is a significant mode of reasoning that they're taking by doing it weekly like this rather than just throwing all the content at your face because I feel like there's a lack of sense of urgency if it's all just sitting there it's like oh well I'm busy tonight I got plans or I'm not busy tonight and I don't want plans and I don't want to you know what I'm saying is having it all there waiting in a pod for you changes how you approach watching it we have so many choices now and like I remember you know back when you know, some people had VCRs, some people, uh, some few people had TiVos. Like my dad works in the telecom industry, so we hopped on the TiVo train pretty early. Right. But like, it still sometimes blows my mind when these streaming services put out a whole season at once. But I, I think the the really grand thing is that we have the choice. And, and sometimes it's frustrating when they just like put a whole season out at once and it, it, it feels like you don't have the choice to watch it gradually. You're mm-hmm. not interconnected in that globally. Like the reviews coming out, 
you know, constantly, but also like keeping up with the social media and the reviews and all that. I tend to stay away from that, so I'm not super partial to it, but it's just brilliant how much choice we have. And I think Game of Thrones and HBO's streaming platform, and like that was kind of the dawn of that whole thing, really influential in it. And it's just crazy to see. Isn't it funny how we totally negate our own ability to just, like, not binge a show? <laughs> like, that's never been an option. Exactly. There is no willpower for that. No. Yeah. Right. Like, not once has it ever been, you know what? I want it to be a weekly thing. I'm going to make it a weekly thing. One episode a week. I have never heard that from anybody for as long as I've lived. If it's there, they're going to watch it. I've tried to do that, and it's never once worked. Nope. <laughs> so, like any of the shows I've watched, it's one season at a time. I'm like, okay, we're going to watch it every Monday, and then Tuesday rolls around. I'm like, next episode. Right, <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah, and and I think that option of choice, that the ability to make that choice becomes further complicated by the nature of streaming services themselves because if you look at something like Game of Thrones or House of the Dragon is despite the fact that House of the Dragon was released sequentially if you wanted to get caught up of Game of Thrones you could binge watch the entire show because all of the episodes are available mm-hmm. on that platform mm-hmm. and so this is where we are in interesting time visually speaking where despite the fact that it exists as a streaming service you know the gimmick is you can take it wherever you want to go. You can watch, you know, Game watch of it anywhere. Yeah, House of Dragon on your tablet, on your phone, wherever you are, right? Whenever you want to, but it's released mm-hmm. like cable television. Mm-hmm. It is released on the schedule to the point where you have someone like myself, right. who plans this as an event where I sit down and I watch the show on my couch and I and I have this event around it. Whereas I could also with Game of Thrones, which is all already out, I could just lay in my bed and watch the entire show just in one fell swoop. Like, I have the ability and Mm -hmm. the option to do that. So it's a weird double-edged sword in that way. It's interesting because they have the liberty to choose any time they want because they're not dealing with the schedule of cable. Mm -hmm. So they don't have this packed-in schedule. So I remember when Breaking Bad was coming out, it was like Thursday at... 8.30 8.30 p.m. or something, some ridiculously late time for me. <laughs> but it's interesting that they made the choice to make it come out on Sunday nights because a lot of people on Sunday nights are about to go into the work week. Mm-hmm. So when you look at it from a marketing perspective, it really does create that hype that has been alluded to with the show coming out on Sunday nights because Monday morning, you know you're going to show up at work and everybody's going to be like, hey, did you see the episode last night? Right, right. And do you think that there's any kind of real consequence for the fact that we don't that we can take our phones anywhere that has HBO like literally take Game of Thrones in your pocket with you anywhere do you think that there's a consequence that we don't sit down together at home spending time all bonding watching media together and that it's just like this incredibly accessible commodity Hmm. well you know I think there is but I think we need to remember like we're really naturally drawn to that structure like we want to feel almost like told what to do Mm -hmm. by society but in a way where we like who is telling us (laughs) what you know this sometimes people say we want a good master right out of society is what we want and it's kind of sliding right now and who knows if 
there'll be some kind of backlash and we'll be like return to this schedule <laughs> thing or or if we'll seek out like that form of structured community cultural enjoyment somewhere else but like I think deep down we all really crave it and I, I don't know that the phones can necessarily like fundamentally change that mm-hmm. so I don't know that we need to worry but we're certainly enduring some kind of fluctuations yeah and I think that's compounded by the fact that that's how streaming services has marketed as themselves is cable but cheaper um, <laughs> yeah. and more mobile. Whereas, especially given the fact that most of us have multiple streaming services that we are subscribed to, which right. the prices of which will add up to a basic cable subscription at this <laughs> point in time. And so, yeah, exactly. I, th- I think that it doesn't necessarily compound or or complicate that that dynamic of of watching with the event of watching or watching with, you know, a group of people or Mm -hmm. what have you, because as we all have sort of brought up with the individual ways that we have began watching House of the Dragon Mm -hmm. is that we all watch the show and just television shows in general in vastly different ways. Mm -hmm. And I think that by virtue of it existing as content in a space that it, does not care what way we watch it. I, I don't think that the way it is presented necessitates that we do watch it in a certain way. It just, you know, like I said, it, it gives us the option to you got to binge the show or mm-hmm. watch it episodically, right. weekly, what have you. You can set yourself to a schedule. And so I think this begs the question then of that topic of investment is you have different types of people who watch the show, different types of people who say, I don't really watch the show at all. Mm. And then how do they watch the show? Do they, you know, would they prefer to binge watch, you know, the show? Or as as someone like Darson pointed out, they are incredibly invested in the show and they love it when they can release it episodically mm-hmm. because it can get them more hyped up for the show. It can get them more invested in what each episode has had to say. They can digest the episode from the last week. And so this brings up a great question of who House of the Dragon is for, because I think it's easy enough for say, well, it's meant for everybody. It's meant for all types of these audiences. But, you know, like I said, as we have pointed out, we have all approached the show in various different ways to the point where some some of us haven't even approached it at all. Yeah, I you know, so I think when we talk about that first We want to think about, like, who is the science fiction fantasy clientele generally. And at least in America, we associate this with disaffected young men primarily. You know, we think of the stereotype of, like, the nerd or the geek. And and in the 20th century, this was a lot more true. But in the first decade of the 21st century, things kind of started to change because you had Harry Potter, you had the Peter Jackson uh, Lord of the Rings movies, you had the Star Wars prequels. All this stuff started kind of like wearing down barriers, but more from like the kids side and then the adult side with Lord of the Rings. But then the really crazy thing that happens is... In 2011, not only do you have the first season of Game of Thrones come out, you also have the video game Skyrim come out. And so, like, it's important to recognize that, like, we have this initial base and impression of what science fiction and fantasy fans are, but that Game of Thrones, in reality, 
also represents an expansion beyond that. And I also think it's important to realize that this was a time, because I think you were absolutely right in mentioning Skyrim and Lord of the Rings and this. I think this was also a really beautiful time when we decided that fantasy wasn't dorky anymore. Yeah. I think we all decided that it was actually pretty cool <clears throat> and we could all find a little something in that genre that related mm. to us and that we really liked and we had like, you know, found this really fun, like fantastical verve for it where you weren't a nerd for liking um, elves. You know, you weren't Definitely. a nerd for, you know, being super hype about dragons and, and medieval warriors. You know what I mean? It was cool. And it's it's also important, though, to remember that it shifts. So, like, now, like, what has filled that space? And now anime kids and kids who are a lot of anime contingent subcultures are the new sort of targets for abuse. And then there's people like me who are like, okay, now I have this social acceptance uh, I can talk about Star Wars in mainstream settings. Everyone thinks it's cool. Mm -hmm. But, like, my actual experiential peers who are now in high school right now and aren't socially getting along, they're gravitating towards completely different stuff. And, like, they think that all this stuff now is, quote-unquote, normie or mm -hmm. whatever. So it's important to remember how things <laughs> fill that vacuum. Right. And I think what has kind of filled this vacuum, which I will say that House of the Dragon is still remaining incredibly relevant, I think it's going to stay really high up until that two, that series two ends. Um, I think what's kind of filled this, and my friend has talked about this before, my friend Allie that I interviewed, about uh, true crime. I think what has kind of moved out, but still you find these similarities and their patterns mm -hmm. with House of the Dragon, Game of Thrones, and just fantasy in general, is the notion of, of violence, of being power hungry, and uh, some kind of ascension, which is you know, very relevant in true crime and serial killer documentaries. And so my friend really enjoyed uh, that and talking about that with our interview. I think the split between the two, like the definitive barrier between like cinematic gore and like true crime or realistic gore is I can take the realistic stuff is I know that this definitively happened like although it may be like disgusting and heinous and hard to talk about hard to consume it's real and it's typically just going over the fact of the matter when it comes to cinematic rape for example mm -hmm. I have a really hard time accepting and kind of processing what went through their heads mm -hmm. with not necessarily like the idea of rape in in that movie but it's odd thinking about the the process of creating that scene and yeah. and like keeping in mind real survivors and things like that it's hard to hit that mark without being exploitative or Absolutely. disrespectful and being a victim in my own circumstances, especially after that happened to me, it's been extremely hard to consume the false portrayal. Yeah. So this brings up another question of appeal within the kind of popular mainstream of, because you had mentioned that true crime kind of fills the void now that fantasy has kind of reached this... Glass ceiling. Great way to describe it. Glass ceiling of popular you know, culture mm -hmm. has reached this, you know, zenith, if you will. Nice. 
as your friend kind of talks about, like, there is this appeal in the real. And I, and I think that grounds the audience a little bit in that world because it is our world that we currently live in, however traumatic it may be. Mm-hmm. While there's certainly some uncomfortability there, as she, you know, points out, the appeal then is that you can not necessarily connect with, but, you know, understand what is what is happening. And so I think that kind of separates the audiences then into two distinct areas where while each are popular in their own respects, there are some people who can get lost in the fantasy and can make those connections like, you know, we all can. We can find those characters within fantasy shows within ourselves and we can lose ourselves into the world of of Westeros. But there's also people who cannot do that. Yeah, you know, you you make a lot of good points. And I think one of the ways we can kind of clarify that is by keeping in mind that while there are like a lot of layers mediating authorial intent when we talk about a TV series based on a book published on HBO, it's important to keep in mind that George R. R. Martin has two sort of isms that are really at play um, in his purpose of writing. And the first one is Tolkienism, which Tolkienism is about like, we're going to set up this fantasy world that is rooted in real aspects of the human experience. And that's going to allow us to engage in the human experience while kind of like putting our baggage aside by not having these sort of uh, too many concrete elements that remind us of the real world and our real problems. But then the other component, the anti-imperialism, um, it's really important to know that George R. R. Martin, much like George Lucas, you know, as a young man in the 60s and 70s, a conscientious objector, very opposed to the Vietnam War. And it doesn't get talked about a lot, but like we can really look at like, say, Star Wars is this anti-imperialist, anti-Vietnam War thing from the perspective of, quote unquote, the good guys. So for these young leftists in the 60s and 70s, the good guys are the North Vietnamese against the giant empire. And what George R. R. Martin's trying to do with the Game of Thrones universe is sort of flip this on its head. And we're looking at things from the perspective of the people trying to maintain the empire and it, in a way that like we see how from their perspective it really devalues the suffering and all of this. But then there's this, you know, maybe problematic, we'll talk about it, contrast because we're publishing this on HBO and HBO has these expectations about a certain well, perverse is, implies moral judgment. That's not what I mean, but like perverse enjoyment, enjoyment in the analytical sense where it's excessive and it's, it's sexual. And I don't think George R. R. Martin's point is to sexualize the rape that accompanies imperialism, but the demands of the publishing, the publishing method, you know, they really problematize that. And and he clearly made the choice that, like, I want to get my message out there. I want everyone to see it, and I'm going to make those compromises. And I think that's where, you know, Ali brings up a great point of that uncomfortability because you clearly have audiences who are uncomfortable with these types of moments and who are clearly bothered by these types of things that maybe Martin obviously 
did you know did not want you know in, intend for, but you know the showrunners, by virtue of it being an HBO produced show, wanted to kind of feature or what have you, as you as you mentioned, Landon. Yeah, I think it's really interesting the way that Allie is able to compare and contrast her choice to not watch something as uh, shocking and gratuitous as Game of Thrones and still is able to really fully dive, you know, headfirst and indulge in the shock of real life crime, much like what we see nowadays with this boom in true crime uh, documentaries and podcasts and, you know, all of that it's so attractive to certain people because of those shock value yeah yeah and I just am not one of those people yeah I think maybe when I was a little bit younger like you know I feel like every kid has had this odd phase of going on gore websites and watching like beheadings and terrible things happen to people and it kind of desensitizes them to that totally and everybody has like x amount they can take and for a while like I was really interested in really gory things Mm -hmm. I've always been kind of deterred from like I like I said the the like cinematic like sex scenes but the the gore I was so intrigued I was so enraptured by it I just thought it was so gross so shocking right but then a couple years ago, ever since I went through, I went through my, my assault. I have never really seen cinema or media the same. Mm-hmm. I definitely don't consume things the same that I did before that. Sure. I, even regular gore, I have a really hard time just experiencing the. I I am so empathetic, which is <laughs> I'm an empath, but <laughs> the way that I my feelings are so touched and moved with the with like cinema I think that I'm really deeply moved by movies especially now like after the fact of everything I'm definitely even more so touched by movies so they move me and sometimes I just can't take the emotions that they portray I think this really sets up a sort of powerful realization from the position of the spectator in that these you know, types of moments, these types of thematics that are present in shows such as House of the Dragon and Game of Thrones can be triggering for certain types of audiences and can elicit these emotional responses. And I think that's powerful um, in a certain sense because I think that speaks to the power of cinema and the power of visual medium as an art form. But I think it can also be problematic, certainly, you know, as we have seen, as Ali has so powerfully mentioned, that these moments can bring up past trauma, past events that happened in their own lives. And so I'm, I'm inclined to consider, you know, we, we talked about Martin's perspective and where he's trying to you know, impart his discourse with these certain moments, but also how is that complicated with what the showrunners are trying to enforce with this type of content and how that can be perceived by viewers like Ali, like all of us here who view the show. We're going to take a quick break, but when we get back, we will be discussing these implications of how people are bothered by these problematic elements within the show and what that says about who is watching the show and its existing popularity.
Welcome back, everyone, to the second half of the Culture Clash podcast. I'm your host, Jake Johnson. I'm joined once again by my lovely guests, uh, Kendall. Hi, Jake. Landon. Hello. And Madison. Hi. Uh, so we last left off talking about uh, this idea of spectatorship and, and what people gravitate towards and what people don't gravitate towards in House of the Dragon. And I'm curious as to how those, you know, you, what does that imply about current political and social relationships? What does that say about what we identify with uh, in the greater scheme of things? I think the first character we have to take a look at if we're going to beg that kind of question is Damon. I think he presents a lot of uh, characteristics and behaviors and traits that we really um, commiserate and resonate with. And, you know, when we're considering Damon, we, you know, it opens up the door to discussing current and political values and power struggles because what Damon is so applauded for is, um, you know, power hungriness and uh, control and struggle and domination. And so that, you know, we should we should be looking a little bit more into why we like him so much. I, I personally hate Damon. I think he's creepy and gross, but I really was expecting everyone to like him. And actually, um, my beloved professor, Bill Wagner, also really thought uh, that he's pretty likable. So let's, let's see, hear what he has to say about that. Last night, my dad texted me asking if I was caught up, and he mentioned that he doesn't like any of the characters. And... I kind of see that, I, I, but I want to. I want to hear what you think. Do you like any of the characters? Yeah, I. So one, I should back up and say that um, uh, that I had kind of a fraught relationship with the original Game of Thrones. Um, I actually tapped out for a while because uh, the show was too violent for me, and particularly violence towards women in the show was just a little too much for me. Um, and my wife kept watching. And so I would sort of, you know, I would walk in and out of the room and sort of pay attention for a little bit. And I ended up essentially following the story and eventually getting back into it towards the end. And now I think I've, I've gone back and watched the whole thing. Um, so that, so the original show wasn't completely unproblematic for me. But I do think um, I do think that I there were plot lines um, that brought me more joy in the original show than I find myself experiencing with the with the new show, which I think is pretty joyless. You, despite the fact that I think the show is trying to show complexity in all characters. Um, Maybe except maybe except for Amond. Amond is the the eye patch, very aggro eye patch uh, child, who by the way um, reminds me of a young version of the character of, of Uncle Drosselmeyer in the Nutcracker. And now that I have that in my head, I kind of can't unsee it. Um, but um, but there are a lot of characters that I really actively dislike in fact sort of the whole high tower clan that whole side of the family um they're they are pretty dislikable 
and and then on the other side of the family uh i think that damon is probably the character that i come closest to liking um and Rhaenyra so far um i also am sort of lukewarm about uh so um so yeah, I would say Damon is is the character that I most root for, which is kind of funny because he is a, you know a very problematic character who kills his first wife to to marry his um, his niece. Uh, so, um, uh, but I I think you know I kind of agree with your dad's sentiment that there are not a lot of likable characters in this show. Bill brings up a really great point there um, in discussing, you know, the character that we come not, not that we don't like fully, but that we come closest to liking is Damon. And and I think he sets it up in such a way that we are meant to like him while at the same time disliking uh, his political rivals, um, the the green faction of of the high towers. And I think that sets up, especially as the series goes on, uh, it sets up those two factions. Rhaenyra and Damon are um, the black faction, and then Alicent and Otto Hightower are the green faction. You have these two sides who are um, jockeying for power for the throne. Um, and this becomes obviously further complicated once uh, the king Viserys uh, passes away later on. And so, and so I think because you have this moment where where Rhaenyra is, is, you know, proclaimed the heir to the throne, you know, at the end of the end of the first few episodes here, you, you are meant to think like, well, the throne is hers. So we, you know, she should be queen. She, we're going to follow her. We're going to root for her. And then you have this moment where you have this other side who is vying for power and I think because Damon sides with Rhaenyra, the quote-unquote rightful heir, I think that ingratiates us as an audience to him and the perspective because he has chosen what we perceive to be the the correct side. I, I think that's super right. People like Damon because people like attractive, cool dudes. And, like, I, I don't like him. I also don't like or identify with attractive cool dudes i don't know i think he's skeevy i think he's like the whole time i'm like this guy i don't think i'm supposed to trust this guy and then they subverted by my expectations by like now it's seeming like i'm really supposed to like him and you know i i don't know how i feel about it but i definitely feel like i had a pretty heterodox experience as far as like how i experienced damon I think he really resonates, and I had mentioned this prior to the clip, was this this ambiguity to his character, is he never fully presents as one way or another. He's, he's very gray, you know, and while he does very black and white things, it's all for very gray reasons, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. And so I think it kind of... 
I think it kind of resonates with this idea of like, wow, he does really terrible things, but it was motivated by this, which is kind of messy. And I don't quite know how I feel about that. And how would I have reacted if I had been put in a position like that? You know, can I relate to him because I condemn the things that he does? Or can I relate to him because I've found myself in similar compromising positions that he does? You know? Yeah. And I think and I think this is where the show kind of loses steam a little bit for me in the sense that we're encouraged. I think that culminative episode, I think it's episode seven, I believe, where they split into the two factions, the blacks and the greens, and that we are encouraged to choose a side is complicated by the fact that you have these kind of morally gray characters. And I think on the one hand, this is the show trying to say like, well, there's, this is you know what was going on this is none of these people are ever you know morally in the right it's all about power it's all about a quest for power but then at the same time by virtue of them being the protagonists we're supposed to like you know Rainier and Damon's faction right a little bit but then at the same time you you can also sympathize with someone like Allison who's on the opposite side so I think there's a little bit of push and pull that kind of almost muddles the characters a little bit did you did you ever feel like your opinions toward the characters i realized in like the first and second half of it it was split up of timelines but in the latter half did you feel like your feelings towards rhaenyra allison and damon were constantly in flux like every new episode as new events were transpiring were you finding yourself ever switching sides or like wow i really thought that they were kind of doing you know doing what i wanted them to do last time and now i'm rooting for somebody else i constantly yeah i think well Especially if you really get into the idea, if, like if you buy into this whole succession thing and this idea that like we should take like the moral arguments as who should secede seriously. And and like for us, you know, like we grow up in a in a democracy where we, you know, we um, have a very developed critique of monarchy and the things about it that are unfair. And so when we see characters trying to sort of execute monarchy in at least as fair of a way as possible we sort of instinctually are like okay so they're like us like they're gonna stick with the thing they're not gonna just change the plan just because of some sexist peasants or whatever like you know and and we identify with that struggle and i it i relates to our struggles now in terms of likability then i kind of want to call into question the, the overarching umbrella of um, masculinity mm-hmm. of this show and the importance of why is masculinity so praised? Why is it so valued? And why is it valued that over um, femininity, you know, and the normalization that you should be emotionally cold and you should be vicious and callous and constantly power hungry, which I don't think always fall in line that like every masculine man uh, are those evil connotated things. But in this show, that's definitely how they're being presented. Well, and that's, you know, how they succeed, right? Because the if we contrast the character of Damon versus his brother Viserys, Viserys fails 
because he wants to do the right thing, because he wants to be kind. He wants to have it both ways where he wants to appease, you know, Rhaenyra and also, you know, Alicent. You know, his final scene is him at the dinner table saying, can't everyone just get along? Whereas Damon, for better or for worse, again, makes the steps necessary to ensure success and victory. It but, feels like like nice guys lose. Yes, That's exactly. This reminds me of a conversation that I had a while back with uh, two of my uh, professors at CU Denver, Sarah Hagelin and Katie Mormon. And we kind of discussed, you know, the the implications of why you know, problematic characters, uh, specifically problematic male characters such as Damon, are kind of put front and center in the show. Um, because we, I feel as though it almost comes at the cost of other characters. And as Sarah and Katie will comment, this comes at the cost of mainly female characters. Let's listen. I want to gauge um, your thoughts on, um, you know, like I mentioned, how, how these characters, um, especially with regards to gender, because we have... You know, I think House of the Dragon, by all accounts, is a female-driven narrative. Um, how those perspectives and how, you know, based on how it's treated, like other kind of minority characters, how this speaks to uh, gender in any way. I'm curious if you think <laughs> I've been I've been reading Sarah's book. I'm <laughs> and I'm curious what you think about number one. Is this a female-driven narrative? I'm not convinced necessarily that it is, despite the screen time that the um, women protagonists get, um, and like how you feel like the the two main Alicent and um, Renera, how they are portrayed in terms of hero anti-hero, if they fall into the, that kind of scheme work. Yeah. So I mean, certainly the show wants to be framed as coming from the perspective of the female characters. I think we can see that in the fact that the very first episode has that voiceover from adult Rhaenyra, right? Like, that's a move where the show is trying to say this is the way the show is going to be focalized. I also think that's why they chose to open it with um, Rhaenys, Rhaenyra's aunt, being, like, denied what really should have been her claim to the Iron Throne. Um, and then Renera's father is put on the throne instead. So those two moves, I think, are the show's attempt to set this up as if it's a woman-driven show. Um, I agree with Katie that it doesn't always feel that way, um, although perhaps that will change now that Patty Constantine... Katie and I constantly <laughs> refer to Viserys as just, like, Patty Constantine. Um, now that he's died, again, spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> but in terms of, of the hero anti-hero dynamic with Alicent and Rhaenyra I've read some interesting sort of chatter online um, where folks are seeing Alicent as a character as being a sort of um, stand-in or or a reference to Cersei Lannister and there's certainly I, I know that's what I thought at first too partly because the actor's portrayal of Alicent is so different from Lena Headey's performance as Cersei um, but in certain ways, like these characters who are queens, but are queens through marriage and don't seem to have much political power of their own, um, and also the way that both characters seem driven by trying to protect their children, the oldest of whom is a sociopathic 
like platinum haired son, right? So in that sense, I do see a certain similarity. But I will say that Allison has not yet for me emerged as as powerful an on-screen and narrative presence as Cersei Lannister. Like you all both know of my love for Cersei as a character. Um, but also partly through the way the Cersei character was written and also partly through Lena Headey's performance, she was a character who you always wanted to see on screen. You rarely agreed with what she was doing, but you were happy when she was on screen because she was funny and compelling and magnetic and um, scenes that included her sort of snapped with energy. Um, Katie and I were just discussing last night that the only character I think so far on House of the Dragon who's doing that is Damon, right? So he has sort of emerged as this sort of anti-heroic presence, which I think does a little bit to undercut either Rhaenyra's or Alicent's claim to that status. And again, I think this is partly Matt Smith's performance, but it's also partly the way um, the characters seem to be written. What do you both think? I think it's totally the writing. I, I found that both Rhaenyra and Alicent are muddled. I can't make them out. They um, clearly tend us in a direction to think about both of them, but then at really crucial moments have them do the opposite of what they've set us up to think that they will do. So their character development to me isn't very clear. Um, and then neither of them, I think, Alicent having a parallel to Selsky Lannister or Rhaenyra having a parallel to Daenerys Targaryen, mm -hmm. they're like really weak, muddled versions of those two kinds of characters. So as Katie has just brought up in this segment, um, this muddling of characters, this idea of, you know, we're supposed to root for Daemon, um, you know, versus... You know, characters like Rhaenyra or Allison who are sort of modeled, maybe not as developed, is as a result of the writing of the kind of the HBO showrunners who their intentions with the show, while they were initially de designing the show as the sort of female driven narrative, have kind of lost their way in a sense by promoting characters such as like Damon, by, by um, you know, giving these characters more focus. I I think it's interesting here if we're, you know, circling around again this idea of masculinity or rather power presented on screen and when is that power applauded and when is it condemned? And I think that Katie not not Katie, excuse me, Sarah had made a really good point when she was saying that she was like if these are supposed to be uh, derivative of Cersei and Daenerys, it, I don't like it. It's not good enough. And I would I would rather side with her saying that Damon is more emblematic of Cersei's, you know, characteristics that we were so drawn to that she was constantly penalized for. You know, in in Game of Thrones throughout the entire time, she cared too much about her family. She worried too much about what she had to do to make sure they were okay or make sure she was okay. You know, no one was safe in her path. And she was, you know, totally shit on for it, to be honest. You know, she was, she was a nasty woman. She was a bitch. And she was evil and callous. And rather with Damon, they're like, you know, they, they think he's awesome and he's badass and he's ready to slay anyone who's in his way. So I do I do agree with you that this is highlighting, you know, not necessarily, you know, nice guys lose, but 
powerful, strong men win. Like, that's the focus, not the antithesis. Yeah, I I really have a different view on Rhaenyra and Allison. I don't view them as muddled. I view them as complex and as a slow burn that really pays off in the end, in episodes that occurred after these interviews that we're um, listening to. Um, I think... I think in the beginning, you can almost view it as muddled just because, first of all, we have time skips where we're left to sort of, you know, fill fill in things. And, and we always get to choose how charitable or not we are um, with that. But also, like, we're talking about these women who, um, as nobility, like, their job is to put on a face. And, like, especially we look at Allison, like, she's trying to manage this pressure from her father um, to, like, maneuver behind the scenes for the throne. Meanwhile, like, running her royal household and, you know, being a queen and all this stuff. And so, like, you know, there are certain instances where, you know, she kind of snaps. And if you don't really think about it, it's like... Um, you know, like that, it, it seems kind of shallow or whatever, but like someone who's under that much pressure to like maintain um, sort of her family line alone as a woman in the highest echelons of power. And then we see something like she demands the, you know, an eye for an eye with her kid, you know, it's like, well, it's, you know, she's presented as someone who's nicer than wanting to like take out a kid's eye. Um, but uh, but she's under all this pressure and it's and it's kind of starting to crack her, you know, whereas, you know, Rhaenyra, I think she's just, you know, she's seething under there. And when she's young, we see all this fire and brightness and joy. And then when it comes, we see her after the time jump and she's been popping out babies for years and she's tired, man. But I think actually like the writing and the actress, you know, gave enough of like showing at least for me that that fire was still there um that that was a slow burn rather than just like a muddleness or a bad character that like I wasn't surprised when then in the finale she ended up showing like real strength the scene that has stirred a ton of controversy um uh, even, you know, as the first episode kind of premiered when um, the queen, Rhaenyra's mom, has a very traumatic birth scene, one of one of many throughout the show that female characters are um, sort of subject to. Um, and um, as Landon has discussed with uh, Bill, again, this, um, this scene, again, sort of fuels these complications, I think. So let's listen. One scene that I really want to talk about is the scene with uh, Prince Balon's birth and the tournament. When you're talking about Balon's birth, you're talking about um, the death of Queen Emma, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. I I think like most viewers, I was I was just sort of horrified by that scene horrified by Viserys' decision to sacrifice his wife, Emma, uh, just for the chance to have a male heir. I thought that Queen Emma's death during childbirth and Viserys' reaction to it was very helpful 
to me as somebody who hasn't read the original source material in understanding Viserys character um, and understanding his virtues and his flaws and so much of this first season um, what drives the plot is Viserys mix of, of virtues and flaws. Um, and so, you know, Viserys clearly has a sense of regret. He clearly realized that he has um, chosen to, to put his true love to, to death um, in order to, to produce a male heir, or at least to, to have that, that slim chance of a surviving male heir. Um, and so you, you can see, you know, his, his weakness in that moment, his poor decision-making, but also, um, his, his very real, um, affection for his wife and his sense of, um, of regret. Uh, so, so that, so that scene for me, uh, you know, I was, like I said, I was horrified by, by the death of a, um, of a character that I thought in her brief appearance in the show was, was very interesting. Um, I uh, was horrified by the whole dynamics of the decision um, to, um, to operate on Emma with the understanding that she would likely die and, and, uh, uh, and for the chance of Balon to live. Um, but I, but I, that, scene was really useful for me in terms of developing the series character. I also, I think that um, that seemed like a moment where uh, the showrunners were really prompting readers to think about the fact that the, that these men in the room were essentially making decisions about a, a woman's body and ultimately her life um, in the, in the childbirth process, I, I, it felt like the showrunners were trying to get us to think about that moment in the context of contemporary politics surrounding reproductive rights. And so when you ask what was on my mind watching that scene, I certainly was thinking about it in the context of, um, uh, of current abortion politics. And, um, and I thought it was, that added a, a layer of poignancy to, to the scene as well. And I think this what um, this gets to what you were saying, Landon, about this idea of what the what the show you know encourages reader or um, audiences to think through, um, and especially within the context of the show and kind of this again within the context of this medieval kind of society is yeah you have these kind of powerful male, you know, figures who are making these decisions on behalf of, um, you know, female characters like, like Queen Emma. And yeah, I, I certainly agree with what, you know, with what Bill said there about, you know, it was horrifying to watch and, it, and it's certainly problematic in that regard. But I think it is also important, again, to recognize that, yes, while, while you can certainly view it in that regard, how does this traumatic scene impact, um, you know, 
viewers watching the show because as bill mentioned himself he had to step away th- for a lot of the moments because it was just too horrifying or as ali had mentioned earlier there are moments that were just too triggering for her and and i'm just wondering if it is worth it at that point to to make these sort of arguments but this well at the same time alienating almost a large chunk of your audience yeah, well, and before before we dive too deep into that, I think we ought to flesh out for maybe people listening who don't entirely know that that is the first of three um, birth scenes um, in this show. So that one results in the man, the high king, um, making the decision and choosing the baby's life over the mother, and then the baby dies anyway. And then we have... Um, uh, the sea snake's daughter is married uh, to, uh, who's he married to? Damon, right? Mm-hmm. She, she's married to Damon, and her baby isn't coming out. And she um, she commits suicide by dragon fire, um, I believe, against the protests of other people. Um, so, so that really establishes, at least in uh, what we're dealing with in the universe of the show, is that um, there is... Um, they're not understanding there to be like a positive outcome anywhere in that situation, uh, medically, whatever. Um, but then the final scene in the finale where we have um, Rhaenyra giving birth or miscarrying, the fetus is relatively far along, and she is the high queen and she takes no orders and she does everything her way and she says no you get away from me you don't touch me um and it really kind of completes this sort of arc i think they're trying to show us that like like political power is the path to power over reproduction or whatever um but um now that we have that full context in those other three scenes, like I, I think you're bringing up an interesting question. I don't know what, what do you think? Um, in terms of birth, I think it's really important that you kind of look at it very uh, boldfacedly. That the fact that in the two instances of birth scenes that we see, the mothers die as a result, um, and even though. Um, you know, Damon's wife did die by suicide by dragon. She also wouldn't have done that had she not been pregnant. So I think what we're viewing and what we should be paying closer attention to is rather the the very real consequences and expectations of women who, you know, it's just it's simply only a thing, you know, a woman can do. So because of that, there's only this very one dimensional understanding of it. And so constantly in its portrayal of these women dying as a result, I think is very important to pay attention to is that while, you know, the men in the show are dying as a result of each other, women are dying as a result of their offspring. I think George R. R. Martin, one of the things he really, really needs us, wants us to understand through his work is like when war's just inevitable, like life is hard and sucks for everyone. Hmm. Yeah, and I think I think we can certainly validate that perspective as not only is George R. R. Martin the creator of the show, but also yeah, that lends to the authority there. And I think it's also yeah, recognizing that like. Sure, tough choices have to be made, but I think, you know, 
for where I'm coming from at the end of the day is um, who is making that cho- who are making those choices and um, and why and for what reasons and I think as we've clearly established the answer to that question is men and for power to to win to succeed because if we look at you know someone like um, uh, like Damon's wife who who um, has committed suicide as Kendall has pointed out she wouldn't have been in that position if she you know hadn't gotten pregnant in the first place which was this kind of role imposed upon her by the society at the time by Damon um, specifically and so the ramifications there um, are you know important to bring up which you know as we as we have discussed and um, but on the other hand seeing those moments seeing those moments on screen um why you know why these scenes have to be the way they are is 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 i think where the show is still figuring itself out is is how to balance critiquing the politics of that society while also not damaging um Dam- damaging, you know, the, the, the viewers who are, who are taking these moments in. So. so we've talked about these more, you know, traumatic moments. We, we've, we've talked about how, you know, this kind of perspective, especially from these more marginalized groups, are, are considerably diminished throughout the show um, in some respects. Um, and what do traumatic scenes such as, you know, the, the childbirth of um, both that um, Emma has as well um, as Lena has, um, and in addition to Rhaenyra herself. Um, and I'm curious as to, you know, what this says about our world from the perspective of Fantastical One. Do we see any of these types of themes presented in the show play out? in our real life politics. Yeah, well, you know, as a history major, I I really wanted to talk to Bill cuz you know, he's our he's our undergraduate advisor as history majors. I wanted to talk to him about this cuz like he um he's a really um expert in like family history and cultural history and so he has some interesting things to say about like how we think about family and family dysfunction across time and how and how that's not trans historical. Let, let's listen to him. As a historian, when you are reading about people's family lives and their family struggles and, you know, people's families, uh, does that feel like it just changes super radically over time or or is family family, at least uh, in your estimation? That's a, that's a good question for, for a historian. Um, you know, essentially, as, as you know, being a history major, historians always try to balance two competing impulses when we, when we look at the past. On the one hand, we try to keep in mind all the ways that our historical subjects are different from us. Um, And we try to understand our historical subjects on their own terms, um, rather than projecting our worldview back in time. Uh, We have a really 
sort of keen sense of the particularity of every moment in history. Um, and we want to sort of understand, as I said, understand the past on its own terms and what makes each time period distinct. Um, so we're really kind of attuned to change over time. Um, and we're really attuned to what, um, to, to the ways in which even family dynamics that seem like they must have always been that way are, it can change over time and are constructed historically. On the other hand, we, we also have the very human and important impulse to connect to our historical subjects, uh, to think about how we might act if we were in their shoes and to think about how their experiences are relevant and in some ways perhaps similar to our own. Um, so, and it's really only natural to, to do this, but, it, but it's also an important part of being a good historian and writing history that sort of captures humanity and is relatable. Um, so, so I think that um, it's in watching family drama, um, I think it's totally fair and worthwhile to think about um, what aspects of family relations um, are kind of trans historical. Um, we, can, we can very easily relate to some of the family dynamics in House of the Dragon, even though, again, it's fantasy, not history, but, um, but <laughs> whatever world it takes, it takes place in, it seems like a world that that is similar to, um, to the sort of distant past of our world. Um, so I, I think that, um, you know, I, I think that so to, a, to a certain extent, family dynamics, um, you know, I, th I think that there are some, some aspects of family life that are transhistorical, even as I'm very conscious of historical particularity. And, um, and the ways in which family dynamics have changed over time. Um, so I try to sort of keep both of those things in my mind whenever I'm studying history. Um, when, when I'm watching a TV show, I'm really, um, you know, I think I, I'm more attuned to, to both what's relatable and what seems to fit within the world that I'm watching as it's constructed, what sort of makes sense for that world. Um, and, um, and for the most part, I think that um, that House of the Dragon um, does, a, does a nice job with sort of um, being consistent within that world, but also having family dynamics that are, that are relatable. Um, I think Bill gets at a great point here, um, talking about the show as a sort of callback to a, uh, he used the word distant past or a, a distant history of, uh, that's present in our own world and looking at it through a trans historical, um, perspective. And, and so, I, and I think this is where the show is and a lot of fantasy shows for that matter, um, 
really work for a lot of audiences because they can make those connections and they can see those kind of implications play out, especially from a show that is coming from a sort of modern um, perspective, given that it's coming out um, relatively relatively recently. Um, I, I had a conversa- a similar conversation with, with Sarah Hagelin about this um, in which we discussed, you know, again, those implications of those real-life um, connections and how these kind of – the sort of reckoning that um, the, the show sort of has with our own world history, despite the fact that it's set in a fantasy realm – however many however many years ago let's listen well and i think something like house of the dragon and also the whole game of thrones universe is particularly interesting in this regard because this whole resurgence of interest in the kind of fantasy texts that are set in a sort of vaguely medieval europe you know like for instance the way the westeros pretty clearly stands in for britain um in the show's cultural imaginary I think the popularity of those things in the past 10, 15 years um, does have to do with um, race in the U.S. and more broadly and these sort of debates that folks are having about land, about who owns the land, what it means to be on stolen land. And I think that all of that is kind of in the background of the way that people are imagining this sort of um, return to an earlier version of Europe, which in certain ways is what Game of Thrones and House of the Dragon is. And so this idea of a return to this past time, um, I'm curious, do you think that the show is encouraging this sort of return, or do you think this is sort of pushing back against it? I almost think that they're presenting it so bold-facedly that... um, I I think that they're presenting it exactly how we should be taking it, which is um, it's ugly, but it's real. So I actually think there's not a whole lot of like um, support or condemnation for this rather as like this is how we feel we can depict our understanding of this time based off of our own you know, social evolution and how we look at each other differently based off of these old, very antiquated, primitive ways of behaving. So I think rather than condemning it or supporting it, it's rather like just watch and see. Pay pay close attention because, you know, um, it largely mimics things we hear and see and do um, every day. Yeah, I completely agree. I don't have anything to add, but yeah, I, I, that's my opinion as well. I mean, what do you think, Madison? I would also agree. It almost feels like the people that are producing the shows are trying to sort of take their understanding of what was happening in the past and bring it into the show as almost like a harsh reality. Yeah, and like present it in a way that's still digestible for us because, you know, I feel like it's still fair to say they do take it pretty easy on us in the show. You know, we we don't ever see things happening in real time that actually would leave us with this strong sense of PTSD and shock of just the gruesome horror of trying to survive and be a human uh, in the medieval times, especially one where there are dragons and white walkers and, you know, everyone wants to hurt you and kill your house. I still think they're taking it easy on us. So I think they're making it comprehensive 
um, while still being enjoyable. Because if it really was nothing but eating, you know, mutton chops and cutting each other's heads off, I don't think it would be as successful as it is. And yeah. That, okay. yeah, absolutely. I, I was going to say that that brings up a great point that you had mentioned earlier, Landon, in that, that that's sort of the way in which Martin is approaching this text as, from that historical perspective is it's coming from his background in history. This mm-hmm. is him conveying his knowledge to us through this sort of fantastical story, but through the lens that it is digestible for audiences. And I think that's this idea of it being digestible, as you mentioned, is where I think therein lies the appeal of House of the Dragon is is, is we can sort of get a glimpse at these, um, you know, more obscure politics that have, um, you know, fortunately long since evolved mm-hmm. um, as, as the years have go- gone on. But we're nevertheless present in our own history. And and so it, it's a way for Martin to convey, and, and the showrunners to some extent, to convey these, um, these histories to us through this sort of um, co-opted lens of a popular, popular format. Right, and well, you, you guys also both, you, you're touching on how they're trying to help us along, and I think, um, not only do they try to help us along by, you know, not being too real and having too much gore, but I think also on the entertainment and inter- engagement side, they're like, well, we're going to give a- enough gore that you're going to follow through. And I think I think that's kind of like, if you think about it too much, it's sad that content creators feel like they have to do that in order to get people excited about about whatever content um but yeah like i think the way you guys are putting this of just like they're just trying to you know set up an environment for us to like engage with his stuff i think it's totally correct and i just i feel like they are purposefully teetering on that line because like they also don't shy away from very barbaric acts and barbaric moments and portrayals but i think much much like um, kind of playing a fence sitter as to you know the the real implications of this show. Um, it's I think that's why our feelings were constantly evolving towards the characters. Where you know initially, or even throughout an episode, your mind could change toward a character for the rest of the show, and that would be it because they're trying to show us um, these people who are still people. Just because it was years ago, and we don't necessarily have the same problem in the same contexts uh you know like fighting um famine and you know destruction from other worldly forces we don't really struggle with that but there always is like the black and white side to people especially the characters in the show which i think is what they're trying to say is no one was fully barbaric and no one was certainly an angel these were just as conflicted people as we continue to be so I guess I'm kind of curious that then, and I want to ask all of you, where do you think they should go? What do you think is the, well, you know what, those are two very different <laughs> questions. Whether what you think the plan is and where you think they should go are two very different. But um, yeah, I'd rather it be opinion. Where do you, where do you want it to go? 
Well, given you know my my knowledge on the on the on the text itself, um, the show is clearly setting up for a conflict within um, the houses, the two mm-hmm. families. They they are setting up the the famed battle dance of the dragons, which has been teased for, for so long and is teased throughout. Um, Martin's books. So uh, I, I, I suppose when we talk about fun in television shows, this next season of of House of the Dragon will not be that fun. It will be very, very, um, very uh, violent as, as far as its content. But I think where I would want personally the show to go is, I think maybe embrace it. Um, as as I've kind of voiced my opinion so far. The the way the shows have sort of approached its characters so far is it's um, is it, it has attempted to do some things at the cost of others, and so you get these very gray characters. And with this next season, I want those battle lines to be drawn. Um, I want you know, as you as you mentioned, I want these black and white characters where yeah. I can I can really root for them and I can really dig your heels side. into them exactly <laughs> so I guess then I like want to bounce right off that and ask you do you think it's going to turn into like like a female powerhouse the way that we kind of saw towards the end with like Cersei and Danny going against each other and in this sense it would be like Rhaenyra versus Allison kind of going head to head officially like in any case not necessarily now what you want but could you prophesize that that's what might happen um, without going too much into the actual spoilers of the sure. ne- of the next season, um, it, it is it is likely, um, given that the show has certainly pitted these characters against one another, right. um, and and has fostered this sort of animosity between the two. But I think, as we have seen, that this show started with this smaller fa- family dynamic, but has really ballooned into this global conflict. We see mm-hmm. in this last episode that it's about family and power and amassing forces. Damon is collecting his dragons and Rhaenyra is sending her sons somewhat successfully, um, rest in peace, Luke, um, <laughs> to, to uh, appeal to other houses and build these factions. So it really has exploded into this in- all-encompassing World now mm-hmm. it, it it is Westeros is now the scene. Westeros is now the play rather than this isolated family. So I think it's really gonna be beyond um, Rainier and Allison's conflict. It is this total encompassing thing, which is I think what war is. War is this total thing that um, you know affects everyone. Absolutely. So, I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah. Go ahead, Landon. Yeah. yeah so d- real quick before I give my opinion on this, I, Jake, are they going to go to Essos at all, to your knowledge? Or is this a wholly in Westeros story? Um, for the most part, yes. Um, okay. we, had, we had those moments where uh, Corlys Valerian was talking about, you know, Right. Controlling the narrow sea and right. cutting off those shipping lanes, so he could potentially recruit allies elsewhere to move against Aegon Targaryen. Right. But and so I suppose I will say that it is more localized in this sense, um, as as it's again the it's broadly speaking the conflicts between these two sides, but again, ballooning into these Westerosi okay. families who are who are backing their sides. Okay, cool. Because, you know, the, my thing is, you know, when I think about next season, I'm, I'm kind of honestly, in some ways, not 
looking forward to it just because like the the Westeros has a lot of cool things going on in in Game of Thrones you know one of the big things was the North the North and the White Walkers and like that's all cool and then dragons are super cool but like I feel like I had my fill of dragons this season and so like what I'm really looking forward to is I don't know maybe the next spinoff series where we get to see more of Essos because like I love the Dothraki I'm I'm really personally interested in like Mongolian history and like the peoples of the steppe and horse nomads in general and I'd love to see more of that and yet like I I, I, I it's weird because I really liked this season but I'm not like crazy excited for the next one and like in the grand scheme of all of this what I'm really excited for is the idea that like this is just sort of the first of these worlds that we get to see on the screen. Like, I'm so excited to see what the next generation does with it. Cause like, you know, like people talk about like, er, how cool would it be to see Ursula K. Le Guin's, you know, worlds on the screen. And then other people are like, well, that doesn't quite suit the screen. Like (laughs) we'll see, but something like that could be incredible. And I think, you know, in a lot of ways, this is just the first step to a really cool thing. Right. And like Madison, I know that you're still like trucking through Game of Thrones right now and working really hard on catching up on all that canon, which I think is great. Um, In terms of House of the Dragon, though, and with how much you've been briefed and are already very well aware, what do you think? Um, honestly, I feel like they could do so much just even building the, like, history part Mm -hmm. of the Targaryen family and just kind of even using, like, the factions and what could go down with that and kind of leading up to the Mad King that I barely know anything about from Game of Thrones and just kind of, like, almost building back into Game of Thrones. Are you worried that maybe they're maybe playing it a little safe by like stopping the timeline here. Like, do you wish you could see even farther? Like more so like the roots roots? Yeah, I almost wish I could get more of the families in a way and like really kind of learn their history to kind of build the whole story of where you get to in Game of Thrones. Totally. And this is where I'll pass the question off to you, the listeners. are you excited um, for this next season of House of the Dragon? Are you not excited? Are you, you know, intrigued by where the show could go? Or are would you like the show to have said more? Um, please feel free to leave um, a comment under this episode. Um, I am always curious to hear your thoughts. Um, I'd like to thank my wonderful guests for joining me this episode, um, Landon, Madison, uh, and Kendall, and our um our editor, David, who joined us in the first half as well. This has been another wonderful episode of Culture Clash. Um, I've been your host, Jake Johnson, and thank you all for joining me today. Mm-hmm.